So before Pesach, we were doing a few weeks about uh, the laws of Katras. I want to mention one more law of Katras, which is actually not a law of Katras, but people look at it as a law of Katras. And that's the requirement to be tovel, uh, different utensils that you use in food preparation. Uh, this is called tevilas kalim, the immersion of utensils. And it actually is in the Torah itself. It's not a rabbinic law, it's in the Torah itself, in Parshas Matais. And uh, in order to fully understand it, I'm really going to digress into something that's really, really, really a digression. And as I want to talk about what a mikveh is, uh, it's something that uh, perhaps you never covered in any detail. So I'm going to give you a little more detail, not, not that much detail. Uh, the idea of a mikvah is very, very important in Judaism, and it's important in many, many ways. Uh, every ger, every non-Jew who converts to Judaism, man or woman or baby, must go to a mikvah. Uh, right? If you adopt a, a newborn baby, the baby is not Jewish until the baby is put into a mikvah as well as circumcised. Now you may wonder, how do you put a new baby into the mikvah? You just like throw him in and uh, he floats to the top. No, what's, what's going to happen is if you have an adopted uh, baby, so the father will go into the mikvah, hold the baby draped over his arms and just lower his arms, and the baby hits the water face first. That's actually important because the baby has a reflex uh, of holding its breath when its face hits water, meaning if the baby doesn't hit the water face first, some, I mean, it's not dangerous, but some water may enter the nose and the baby will be uncomfortable. So as uh, one, one needs to know that the baby needs to hit the water face first. Also, it's interesting that uh, the reflex is lost after six months. So it's actually safer and easier to be tovel a baby when they're under six months than when they're after six months. So after six months, they may swallow water again. Not dangerous necessarily, but uncomfortable. Okay, so we need to have mikvah for conversion. We need to have mikvah for nida every month after a married woman has her period and counts the requisite days. She cannot be reunited with her husband until there is immersion in a mikvah. Uh, and in addition, we have even immersion of pots and pans, which is the main thing we're going to talk about. One way of looking at it is the following. Pots and pans have to undergo a conversion process because the same way a non-Jew has to go to the mikvah to become Jewish, when you're taking the pots and pans that were manufactured or owned by a non-Jew and now they're being dedicated to a Jewish table and a Jewish table is like a, a mizbeach, is like an altar. So the pots and the pans have to undergo a conversion process. Utensils also? Like Say again? Utensils. utensils. Yes, utensils too. Yeah, well, I'll talk exactly. What, what, but in other words, because you're converting it, because you're raising it to a higher purpose. Now, in the time of the Beis HaMikdash, mikvah was even more important because there were a gazillion things you needed mikvah for because nobody is allowed to go to the Beis HaMikdash and nobody is allowed to bring a korban unless they're in a state of ritual purity. So if you touched a dead body, you had to go to the mikvah in addition to the red heifer. Uh, if you touched a dead animal, you had to go to a mikvah. A man that had a seminal emission had to go to the mikvah. Uh, there were many, many, many circumstances where you had to go to the mikvah, not just a woman that was a nida. 
but today, most of those requirements are no longer in effect. However, as you know, particularly among Hasidim, there are indeed many, many men uh, who some go to the mikveh every day, and some go to the mikveh Erev Shabbos, and some go to the mikveh Erev Yom Tif, and almost everybody goes to the, all men go to the mikveh Erev Yom Kippur. But even though that those are very strong customs, they are not mandatory per se, meaning to say the only mandatory immersion for people is the immersion of a nida, to be with their husband, and the immersion of a ger, who is becoming Jewish. Uh, every, any other immersion of a person is technically minhag, it is not a halacha, and the immersion of pots, pans, and utensils, that is from the Torah. That does apply even today. Yeah. So do men visit that's correct. Uh, no man makes a bracha on going to the mikvah today, even, even on Erev Yom Kippur. Right. Okay, so what is the origin of the notion that pots, pans, utensils have to be immersed in a mikvah before you use them? So this is really the very last war that Moshe Rabbeinu was involved in. If you remember, this is the 40th year of the desert, and Balak, the king of Moab, hired... Bilam to curse the Jewish people, and Bilam had a power of curse. Whatever Bilam had, curse will travel. Bilam made a lot of money out of this. He had a koach that his curses came to pass. And three times he tried to curse the Jewish people. And every time Hashem turned Bilam's curses into a blessing, right? You remember the story. So Bilam didn't get his money, and Bilam was sent away in disgrace. But Bilam, like, a, like all true Rishayim, had a plan B. He said, hmm, if I can't curse the Jewish people, I'll figure out another way to hurt them. And that is, he gave Balak, the king of Moab, the idea to cause the Jewish people to sin uh, by fornication with Midianite women and by serving the idol Baal Peor. This was an Avodah and it mentions that thousands and thousands of Jews were committing these Averas, and there was a plague, and many people were dying in the plague. And uh, even the head of the tribe of Shimon was publicly uh, with a Midianite woman. And Pinchas stood up and killed him, killed him and her, in the middle of the Misa. And in the merit of that, the plague stopped. The plague stopped, otherwise it would have kept going. And Pinchas was given a covenant of peace. Right? This is all in the Torah. But then Moshe Rabbeinu was commanded to have B'nai Yisrael wage war against the Midianite nation because they were the ones that caused all of these sins. So this was the last uh, war, really, that Moshe Rabbeinu was involved in. And after the victory of the War of Midian, the Jewish people took many of the spoils, and God gave a number of commandments. And it's interesting that these commandments about Midian still apply today. One was about, both of them involve food utensils. Pots, pans, cutlery, although I'm not sure exactly what cutlery they had, but whatever, whatever they had. And that is, there are two different laws that were given after the war of Midian. One is about kashering, and one is about toveling. And these are two different laws. Koshering is a particular problem when a pot or a pan has been used with non-kosher food, 
it absorbs, like that's what we discussed extensively, it absorbs the taste of that food. So when I cook something kosher in a non-kosher pot, the taste of the non-kosher food goes into the kosher food, making it not kosher. Right? That's why you can't use non-kosher pots, right? Or cutlery or whatever it is. So koshering is the method of purging, of getting rid of the non-kosher residue so you can then use the pot without fear, right? This is koshering. Now, the rules of koshering are a little complicated. Uh, that's why uh, Chabad does indeed perform a, uh, an amazing service all over the world. You want to get your kitchen koshered, you know, they will send their specialists to take care of it. The specialist might be a 17-year-old kid, but he knows, he knows what he's doing. Uh, generally speaking. Now, the general rule of koshering, though, is simple. So even though I'm not going to go over the details of koshering, because I would urge you, if you have to kosher, call a Chabad house or something, uh, but the general rule you should be familiar with, and that is the general rule is called in the Gemara, kibolo, the way it swallowed it, the way it absorbs, kachpolto, that is the way it gives it out, which means to say the following. Anything that absorbed treif through boiling liquid gets koshered by immersion in boiling liquid. It takes out the treif, right? So typically, therefore, if you have a pot, a pot generally absorbs by a boiling process, so you kosher a pot by boiling. Now, you can do it two ways. One is you can immerse the pot into a bigger pot, you probably saw that before Pesach. Or you can actually cause the water in the pot itself to boil up as long as it overflows and gets the side. So you can either kosher a pot in a big pot or you can kosher it in itself uh, if the water flows over. Okay? Now that's because it's a pot that absorbed by boiling. Right? So since it absorbed the treif by boiling it gets rid of the treif by boiling. On the other hand, when something absorbed directly through heat without the medium of liquid, for example, a barbecue spit, an oven where you take a roast and uh, it absorbs it without liquid, you have to purge it with fire. You have to have a blowtorch or some say just turning the oven that's a machlokas, some say Turning the oven on the highest temperature would be a way of kashuring it. These are different machloksim. Uh, but that's the yisod. The yisod is that the way it absorbed the treif is the way it gets out the treif. Okay, and the two terms are hagala means kashuring by boiling water and libun is kashuring by a flame, by direct heat without, without uh, liquid. And then, of course, uh, something like a counter, a counter absorbed by hot things being spilled on the counter, so you kosher by pouring hot water on the counter. You see, because you're pouring. It absorbed by pouring, so you kosher by pouring. Okay, very important rule, and uh, this is the basis. I mean, all of the laws of koshering are actually based on this three-word rule, oh, no, two, two-word rule, oh, no, three words, yeah, kibolo, kach, polto, kibolo, the way it swallowed, the way it absorbed, 
Kach polto, that is how it gives it out. Okay. Now, once you've koshered, what you've done now is you have removed the non-kosher residue from within the vessel or the fork or the knife or whatever it is. And now it's as if it's new. There's no residue of treif that's in there. That's what you have accomplished. Now, it happens to be certain materials are so absorbent that they're not kosherable. And then you're in trouble. If something is not kosherable, you essentially have to give it to a non-Jew or throw it away. And the most common example is earthenware, pottery. Pottery is so heavily absorbent that even the koshering processes do not get rid of the treif. So if you have stoneware or even china, because china actually is earthenware with a glaze, so you do have to ask a shayla. Again, I'm not giving you any psak here. We can talk about the more specifics. But when you have earthenware or china, uh, you will run into questions whether you could kosher it. Now, plastic, which is a new material, plastic didn't exist in the time of the sages or time of the Torah, that's a big machlokas. Uh, many, many poskim uh, took the position that plastic was non-kosherable. Others actually say plastic is kosherable, right? So um, ask your local Orthodox rabbi. Uh, I personally do tell people they could kosher plastic. As long as it's a plastic that doesn't melt, like the old flimsy plastic that you put it in hot water, it melts, so that's not kosherable. But if it's, uh, you know, Melmac or some type of plastic plate that can stand heat, then I actually tell people they could kosher it, but some, some do not kosher plastic. But everything else is kosherable. Wood, wood is kosherable. Rubber is kosherable. Uh, granite is kosherable, etc. Okay, so our, our, our subject today is not uh, koshering, but that's the first, but that is, again, the laws of koshering were introduced in the aftermath of the war of Midian against Midian. Now, there's another halacha that is not connected to koshering. That is, even if a vessel was never used at all, it's totally new. So it's, there's no non-kosher food in it at all. If you are getting it from a non-Jew, that means it was either made by a non-Jew, or even if it was made by a Jew, but it was owned by a non-Jew, and I'm getting it from a non-Jew, I'm not allowed to use it for food preparation or food consumption until that I immerse it in a mikvah. So this is not a koshering problem because even if it's new, even after I koshered it, I got to be tovel it. So koshering is called hagalas kalim because of hagala, although we also have liban, and this is called tevilas kalim. Now, theoretically, the order doesn't matter. You can be tovel and then kosher, or you can kosher and then be tovel, meaning the order, assuming you have to do both. Assuming you have to do both, but the custom is generally uh, they kosher first and then, then be tovel. Now, when does this law apply? So let's go over a few things. Number one, it only applies if you are buying or receiving as a gift something that was made or owned by a non-Jew. So, if a Jewish factory in Israel manufactured something, uh, there's obviously no obligation to be tovelet, right? It has to come from ownership of a non-Jew, number one. 
Number two, unlike koshering, where every type of material that absorbed treif needs to be koshered, except for earthenware, which cannot be koshered, the obligation of tevila only applies to things that are metal or glass. This is very important. So, if you have ceramic, or if you have plastic, or if you have rubber, or if you have styrofoam, none of those things ever, you might have to kosher them, but none of those things ever have to be toveled. Toveled is metal or glass. Wood does not have to be toveled. Remember, wood does not. Uh, rubber, plastic does not have to be toveled. Now, China is an interesting question because China is actually earthenware that is glazed with glass. So there's a whole shilat. Do you have to be tovel China? Do I say that it's earthenware which does not need to be toveled? Or do I say because of the glaze, you have to be tovel? So the short answer is whenever we don't know, or there's a machlokes, we're strict and we are tovel, but we don't make a bracha. You only make a bracha when you're sure. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, so, like, if you were, if you buy like, I don't know, like a plastic like mixing bowl, for example, that you can buy from the store, take it home, and use it immediately. Yes, absolutely. There is no obligation. Some people make a mistake, but there's if it's not if it's not glass or metal, there is no obligation. You can use it right away, uh, unless it has to be koshered. You may have to kosher it. But uh, other than that, there's not a problem. Okay? So that's very important, uh, very important to know. It's only if it's uh, metal or glass. China would be an example of a question. Now, a mug. Do you have to be tovel a mug? So really, it all depends. You, you can usually tell. If it's a pure stoneware mug, stoneware is just an earthenware mug, then you don't have to be tovel. But if it has a shiny, if it has a sheen, Right? A mug with a sheen actually means there's a glass glaze over it. So you're tova without a bracha. Right? So, you, so you, should be, you need to be aware of this. You need to know uh, when is it pure earthenware and when is it a glass glaze, which will then make it like china. Okay. All right, so our two conditions are, number one, it had to have been owned by a non-Jew. And number two, it must be glass or metal. Now, third condition, it must be something that is used either in the preparation of food or in the consumption of food. So, preparation of, of food would, of course, include pots, pans, Knives, I don't mean the table knives, knives that you use to cut up a chicken or something, right? Those are used in food preparation. Food consumption would be your plates, if they're the right material, if they're glass plates, let's say. Uh, forks, knives, cutlery, right? See the, the, the thing here, in other words, preparation of food or consumption of food, right? That's the trigger. If it's not used in food preparation or food consumption, there's no obligation of immersion. So now, let me raise a question. What about 
things that are used for food storage. Let's take canister. Right, you have a canister, you keep in the canister rice or fruit. Now, if it's wood or something, you're not high of anyway, but let's assume it's a metal canister. Spaghetti, right, people sometimes keep in cookies. Now, that's not used for preparation of the food, and that's not used for consumption, because you don't bring it to the table. I'm not talking, it's not like a plate. That's used for storage. Do you have to, do you have to be tovel metal canisters? Metal or glass canisters. Now, a pickling jar, you for sure have to be tovel because that's used to prepare, I don't know if any of you make pickles, but you know, if you make pickles, right? So a pickling jar is just like a pot. So for sure, you have to be tovel a pickling jar. But if it's just a canister that you're not using for food preparation, what is the halacha? So as I always tell you, uh, whenever you're asked a question on a test, what is the halacha, and you answer it's a machlokas, you'll always be right, almost. Uh, and this is a machlokas. This, this is a very big machlokas. Yet I, I don't know what the Chabad Minog is, and you can check, or maybe I'll try to check for you too. Uh, but that's where you get into a questionable area. Okay, so food preparation, for sure. Uh, food consumption at the table, for sure. Machlokas regarding canisters. Now, so let's take a few things, a few items, just to uh, be sure uh, if we understand this. Uh, salt and pepper shakers that are made out of glass or metal. Right, a salt pepper shaker. Do you have to be tovel them, assuming they were owned by a non-Jew or you bought them from a non-Jewish store? Uh, the answer is yes, because these are utensils that you use. Well, either way, you use it in food preparation while you're cooking, or, and you use it in the consumption of the food while you're eating. So salt and pepper shakers, you have to be tovel if they're metal or glass. What about a fruit or vegetable or potato peeler? Now, the handle of the peeler is plastic, so that's not the issue, but, but the blade is metal, is metal, right? So generally speaking, you do have to be tovel because that is used in the preparation of food. You don't use it at the table, so it's not used in the, usually, it's not used in consumption, but it is used in preparation of food. Uh, poultry shears, uh, which you cut chicken, big, those big shears, they also should normally be toveled because once again, they are used in food preparation. Not eating, you don't, you don't sit at the table with the poultry shear, but they are used. Now, what's interesting is this. This may sound a little uh, repulsive. Let's assume that you can't find your poultry shears or you don't have them, and you simply want to use regular scissors to cut the chicken. Uh, well, you don't have to be tovel it because unless you designate it to be regularly used for that, a scissors is not a utensil that is used for food preparation. So even if a mikra, in happenstance, you happen to use it, that, that's not an obligation of, of, of tevila. Yeah. Do you have to toivel the knife that's used to shet a chicken? Okay, so here is a very interesting, uh, here is an interesting point. 
you might have, there is a reason that you might have to, but there is a reason why not to as well. In fact, this would even go back to a poultry share. I'm going to mention uh, a machlokas. This is a machlokas area. And that is, some say that the only food preparation utensils you have to be tovel are the utensils that bring the food to its final stage where it's edible. Which means a pot is a very good example. From the pot you can eat it. But the things that you do preliminarily to cooking, so this is actually contradicting what I said a moment ago, things that you do before you even cook, they say there is no obligation of tefillah. So according to that view, poultry shears would not have to be tovelt and kalvachomer a shechita knife. So put this down. So I mentioned so far two machlokas areas. Machlokas number one is food storage, canister. Machlokas number two is food preparation that is prior to cooking. Again, I believe the minig, as most people do, are tovel, but, but there is an opinion that says that any process that is earlier than the cooking does not necessarily require. Now, what about a metal can opener? Whether it's a mechanical or whether it's just an old-fashioned can opener. It is metal, and you use it to get to the food. So do you, and it even may touch the food. It may even touch the food, right? You know, the top of the can. So here, interestingly enough, you don't have to be tovel the can opener. And the reason is because the can opener is not doing anything with the food. In other words, the can opener is not making the food more edible. Uh, you're not eating the food with the can opener. So it's just opening up the can. So the fact that it touches the food is not a problem. It's not something that is preparing the food. Now, some people do have a minuk to be total can openers, but meikar hadin, according to the strict talacha, a can opener, whether it's manual or electric, does not have to be toveled because it is not a food preparation utensil. It is simply opening things up, bottle openers and the like. Yeah. Would you have to have like separate um, milchik friendship can openers? Uh, no, strictly speaking, no. Uh, it's a good idea too, but as long as you're, you're sure that the can opener is clean. Uh, you know, when you open up something, there's no heat involved. So, so there's no transference of the milchik to the fleshik and the fleshik to the milchik. So uh, you can have one can opener for, for everything. But you've you got to be sure there's no gook around. Okay? Everyone understands the general, the general idea here. So this raises an interesting thing. Let's talk about uh, something like um, a toaster oven. Or a blender. You'll see why I'm combining the two different things. Now, uh, well, let me take a blender first. A typical blender has metal, or, or food processor, blender's an older word, but the food processor, a typical food processor has these metal blades, different types of metal blades that cut the food or pulverize the food. And usually the container tends to be plastic, not, not glass. Most food processors have a plastic thing, not a glass thing. So, the rule basically is that we regard the blades of a food processor like a knife. Not a, not a table knife, but like a knife that you prepare uh, food with. 
So under those circumstances, the blades do have to be toveled, but that doesn't mean you have to be toveled the whole food processor. You detach the blades and you put them in the mikvah and then you reconnect it to the food processor and that's going to be going to be fine. Now, the same thing would be true for a toaster oven. Now, here it's a little tricky because there's yet another rule. Again, they keep, I keep on bringing in more, more rules. There's another rule to understand that this idea that you have to be tovel utensils that are connected to food preparation, that only applies if the food directly touches the utensil. So in a toaster oven, if you don't put your food on the tray, you put it in a plate or whatever it would be, then you don't have to be tovel the tray. But if you put it directly on the tray, then you do have to be tovel it, but that doesn't mean you have to be tovel the toaster oven. It means you take out the tray and you're tovel, tovel the tray, okay? Um, now, a few questions. Again, I don't want to go over every single question. I, I want you to, just to understand the basic parameters of this. Uh, there is a bracha when you're tovel kalim. Uh, I'll either, well, if you're, if you're being tovel more than one, al tevilat kalim. And if you're tovel only one thing, it's al tevilat kli, the tevilat of a kli. It's a bracha. Um, a man can do it for a woman. A woman can do it for a man. You can make a shaliach, etc. Uh, but it's not proper for a child below bar mitzvah or bas mitzvah to be tovel because it is a mitzvah that has to be done by a gadol and the like. You cannot immerse vessels on Shabbos or Yom Tov. It's an isher drabanan to immerse vessels on Shabbos or Yom Tov. You are allowed to do it on Chol Hamoet. Okay, that's something very, very basic, uh, basic to know. Um, just like when a person goes to a mikvah, they have to remove anything that blocks the water. Like a woman has to remove makeup, a man has to remove whatever dirt there is, etc. So too, the clay before you immerse it has to be totally clean. And that's very important. That means removing labels. In fact, when you buy glasses, right, there'll typically be a price sticker on the glass. You have to remove the stickers. Uh, if you were tovel and you didn't remove the stickers, it's a shyly, you may have to be tovel again. Other times we say, but the Ebed, it's okay, but there's always going to be a question, so be sure you inspect all of these things uh, beforehand. Now, um, two more issues, and then I'll, I'll, I want to talk about mikvah a little bit, mikvah itself. That is, uh, issue number one is, what do you do about electronic appliances where if you're tovel them, they get wet, there is a risk of short-circuiting or damage. An example would be an electronic coffee maker. Uh, or you know some type of tea urn or whatever it might be, which has electronics in it, or even a toaster. Right? A toaster and it would seem to be required tefillah because you use it to prepare food. Right? So the question becomes, uh, are you tabled the toaster? So there are a few different opinions on this. Some opinions absolutely say you are obligated to be tovel. 
It is a utensil that is used in food preparation. And because it is used in food preparation, you must be tovel. Aye, what about the damage? So they actually say, listen, the problem is only if you use it before it's thoroughly dried out. It short circuits. But if you wait 72 hours, three days, four days, a week, and then use it, it should be no problem. And they even recommend that you should blow dry the uh, thing with a hairdryer. Kind of just dry it out very thoroughly and don't use it right away. I'll tell you the truth. I mean, I've done this in the past and, you know, it's okay. It actually usually it turns out to be okay. But some people are so worried that they refuse to do that. So it's a big machlokas. Some people do have a heter that they do not have to be tovel, the utensils that will be niskalkel. And their argument is a very interesting argument. Their argument is that if these are things that you have to plug into a wall socket, they are considered to be attached to the ground, attached to the building. And the chiyav of tevila does not apply to things that are attached to the building, etc. Okay, so that's uh, an important area to be aware of, a big, big machlokas. Another area of machlokas uh, is chad uh, pa'ami, things that you throw away, disposable. Now, it's very, very important that you don't make a very common mistake. Many people will often tell you the following. You're allowed to use a utensil once before you have to be tovalet. You may have heard that before. Not true. Not true. You are not allowed to use the utensil at all until you're tovalet. But a utensil that will only be used once may not need tefillah. Do you see the difference? Meaning, if I buy a pot, a regular pot, and I'm planning on using the pot for 10 years, I am not allowed to use it even once until I take it to the mikvah. But if I buy an aluminum tin that I intend to only use one time and then throw away, that is where there's a, a rule that some say you do not have to be tovel, disposable aluminum tins that are meant to be thrown away. Because you don't confuse it. It doesn't mean you can use it once. It means if it's something that's only going to be used once. And, and, and the like. Right? So that's the chad pami uh, problem. Now, another thing to keep in mind is this din that is based on the Ramah that you're not allowed to use a utensil until it's tevilt, unless it's a chad pami, unless it's a disposable, may pose a big problem for people who are eating with non-religious relatives. Right? Let's say, let's say a person's own parents are not from but they made a special kosher kitchen for you and they cook only kosher food and you supervise the food. But most of the time, they didn't take the stuff to the mikvah. So even if everything is kosher and even if all the pots and pans are kosher and the dishes, how can I eat from the dishes, etc.? they weren't tie belt. 
So here, there's a very, very, very important psak from Rav Shlomo Zalman Arbach that you need to be aware of. And he says the following. The rule that you're not allowed to use the dishes until they're toveled is only a rule that applies to the owner of the dishes. It's like a punishment. Since you were not toveled, you're not allowed to use the dishes. It's called a knas. But it doesn't apply to a guest. It doesn't apply to me because it's not my dishes. So for me, my only concern is, are the dishes kosher or are they not kosher? But I don't have to worry, were they toveled, were they not toveled? Because the rule that you can't use untoveled dishes is not an absolute rule for everybody. It's a special kanas, you know, kanas, a punishment, on the owner of the dishes. So theoretically, your parents can't use the dishes, but if they're not from there, they may not care about that. But you don't have a particular problem with that. So the only thing I got to look out for is to be sure the dishes are kosher. And even then, we talked about 24 hours, we discussed a lot of issues about that. But I don't have to worry about being told. Nevertheless, uh, if you have the time or the energy, uh, it would certainly be a great mitzvah to you know, help your parents raise their kitchen to the higher, highest level, even if it's not your problem, so to speak, by being tovel for them, right? Uh, you could take some stuff and be tovel for them, and that way they'll have that mitzvah. But you yourself don't have to worry about eating prior to being tovel. Because you see, that's why, see, it's not a kashrus issue. For example, food that's cooked in an untoveled pot is not treif. See, don't confuse it. It's not like an unkashered pot. Food that was cooked in an unkashered pot might be treif. But food that's cooked in an untoveled pot is not treif. And therefore, if you don't have the kanas of not using it, because it's not your pot, you don't have to worry, worry about it. Okay. Now, another very interesting little technicality here is that the chiyav of tevila only kicks in if it belongs to a guy and now it belongs to a Jew. Meaning, strangely enough, as long as it belongs to a guy, there's no obligation to be tovel if you know that it's kosher. Now, this actually came up in COVID. Uh, in fact, I, um, my wife and I own a set of knives. No, no, I misspoke. Uh, we have a set of knives that technically belongs to a, some unknown guy somewhere. I don't know which guy owns it. And this is something that happened during COVID. Uh, I was too lazy to buy it back because then I have to take it to the mikvah. But uh, the way this worked was this. This was a service the OU was offering people. Uh, during COVID, the, the early stages of COVID, people were afraid to go outside. They were afraid to go to the mikvah. Uh, they were afraid they would whatever, they get diseases there, whatever it would be. So the problem was, if people bought cutlery or new things, uh, they wouldn't be allowed to use them until they took them to the mikvah. But they were afraid to go to the mikvah. So the OU had a service that basically says, when we sell your chametz for Pesach, we will sell your knives to a guy, 
and we will not, unlike the chametz that we buy back, we will not buy back your knives until you instruct us. Which means the knives that I bought from a guy now belong to a guy. If they belong to a guy, I can use them without immersing them in a mikvah because it's only my ownership that creates the obligation of mikvah as long as it belongs to a guy, even if it's a guy you sold it to. So the truth is, this is actually an etza for students in colleges. If you're, if you're in a situation where you have pots and pans or cutlery that need to be immersed in a mikvah and you're not near a mikvah, you're not near a mikvah, and therefore you're not allowed to use these pots and pans, what you can do is, assuming you have a non-Jewish friend, and that's not going to be a problem, but assuming you have a nice non-Jewish friend, you can basically sell or give your cutlery to them. She then gives you permission to use it. So you're using the non-Jewish cutlery. You can use it without immersion in a mikvah. Okay, very, very interesting. So as I say, every six months, the OU like, sends me a notice. Do you want us to buy back your, your knives? You know, it's a form, form letter. And uh, so far, I haven't. <laughs> so I said yes. So we're still exempt from, from tefillah. Yeah, is there a question? Yeah. So if you did buy the knives back, you would have to sell Yes, so yes. For, for a period of time, they weren't owned by you. That's correct. That's correct. In fact, that is why we actually say, when you sell your chametz, you shouldn't sell your pots because then when they buy back, you'll have to be Tobo. But here, if it's permanently going to belong to the Gentile, you don't have to be Tobo. I can use a Gentile's pots, assuming they're kosher. Okay, um, yeah, was there a question? Uh, yeah. How is that not like an issue of like theoretical like Geneva? Or, like... Well, well, Geneva from the guy? Yeah. Well, the, the reason is because when, when they sell it to the guy, uh, the condition of the sale is that the Jew is allowed to use it. Yeah, if the guy would say no, then you're right. There, there would be Yeneva in that situation. Yeah. So I know when you sell comments, there's like a specific sort of contract you fill out that's like worded very specifically. Right. Does that also apply? Is there something similar to that if you're like selling your utensils to a non-Jew? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, basically, uh, it doesn't have to be as detailed because chametz is a stricter area of halacha uh, than this. But sure, it does have to uh, ensure that the non-Jew is the owner, but at the same time, you have permission. Otherwise, if you don't have permission to use it, you would be stealing, which, which you're not allowed, not allowed to do. So now let me just raise one final question. Again, I'm just raising a lot of questions, so at least you have a sense of what this halacha is. And by the way, I want to point out that very, very unfortunately, this is a halacha that many, many, many Orthodox Jews uh, either don't know or ignore. I mean, you'd be surprised that you could... Uh, there are many, many people who have literally never heard of this. Uh, and, you know, they're Shomer Shabbos and they're, you know, very, very fine uh, people. But they never heard of taking your pots and pans to the mikvah. And uh, it is a Doraisa, it's not a rabbinic law, it's in the Torah itself uh, at the end of Parshas uh, Masai, uh, Parshas Matos, rather. Okay, so a final interesting issue, which, if you think about it, can really drive you crazy. What do you do with empty glass or metal jars? I mean, let, let's take a very simple situation. You buy uh, a glass bottle uh, or a glass jar of pickles. Um, okay, so you finish the pickles. Now you have an empty glass jar. Not plastic, glass. 
You want to use the glass jar to hold food. Let's assume that canisters have whatever, or, or you want to use it as a pickling jar. Now the question is, you bought it either from a Geisha store, or even if you bought it from a Jewish store, but it was manufactured in a non-Jewish company. So can I use the wine bottle, can I use the pickle bottle, can I use the Coca-Cola bottle without being told? Do I have to, do I have to be titled it? Again, if it's a plastic bottle, no problem. I don't have to be told that. Like, think about it. If I were to buy an empty jar, I would have to be told it. Right? That's for sure, if I'm going to use it for food. So, what's the difference if I buy an empty jar or I buy a jar with food in it that I then empty out and I want to reuse the jar? So this is a huge, huge shayla. Uh, do I have to be taivel, uh jars or bottles that are glass or metal after I finish the food that was in the bottle? Again, um, the answer would be machlokas, but I will tell you this, the general custom, the general custom is you do not have to be tovel. Uh, and the reason is because when you initially bought it from the guy, even though you were buying a container, your main kavana was not buying a container from a guy. Your main kavana was buying the food. So the container is not considered to be significant there because it is secondary to the food. So once again, if I go into a hardware store or I go into a, a whatever it is, a, a, a fancy store to buy a bottle or to buy a beautiful pickling jar, I 100% have to be total. But if the only reason I bought the container was primarily to have the food. So the way we describe it is, we describe the container as nullified, subservient to the food, and that type of purchase would not generate a chiyav tevila, even if you use later. So again, you might find in the course of uh, people that you meet, rabbis or rebbitsons, who will in fact immerse, and there's a lot of halachic basis for that. I'm not saying there isn't, but uh, this, the prevailing minog is not to be machmer, so I don't think you have to be machmer on, on that. Okay, Any, uh, so that's kind of a, our overview of, of tefillah's kalim, so you understand the idea of the mitzvah. Again, I want to emphasize, it is not a kashras problem, so that's why food that is cooked in an untoveled pot is not treif at all. It is not treif, as long as the pot was koshered. Koshering deals with treif, Tvila is a separate mitzvah that attaches it itself. Okay? Alrighty. So now I'm going to digress a little bit, just to give you a little background about what is a mikvah exactly, right? Everyone knows mikvah is a special building, but you know, a mikvah doesn't have to have a building in it and the like. So the Torah says that for all sorts of impurities, uh, you have to go to a mikvah. Now, there are two types of mikvahs that exist. Uh, there is a mikvah that is a collection of rainwater, meaning it's a pool of rainwater that has been gathered. And that actually is called a mikvah. The word mikvah means collection, gathering of rainwater. Or there's another type of mikvah that is an underground gushing spring called mayan. So mikvah 
is rainwater. Mayan is underground spring. So for example, the mikvah in, and people use the word mikvah generally for both, but technically mikvah is rainwater and mayan is spring, mayanot, right? That's the name of his school, is based on a spring because you are an ever-renewing, gushing spring. Now, the thing is, uh, if you've been up to Tzfat, I don't know if you've seen it, uh, the, uh, there's a mikvah that dates from the time of the Arizal. It's called the Ariz mikvah. So that is a spring. That is, that's why it's so cold. It's a natural spring that keeps on gushing. Uh, Mayan is actually the highest level of purification, but generally speaking, most mikvahs are rainwater. Now, how much rainwater do you need to be a kosher mikvah? You need a measure that's 40 sa'ah. That is the halachic measurement. What that translates into is approximately 200 gallons of water. It's not huge. It's 200 gallons of water. Now, in order for the rainwater to be kosher to the mikvah, it cannot be transported in any vessels. So if it accumulated in buckets, it's no good. It cannot go through metal. These are two different requirements. But please note that these are two different requirements. One is it cannot be transported through a vessel like a bucket, even if the bucket is plastic. Number two, it cannot go through pipes that are metal. Okay, so you need 40 saw of rain that was not transported in a truck or a bucket and did not go through metal pipes. Right, so if I'm building my mikvah, how do I get a pool of 200 gallons of water? I, can't, I cannot turn on the tap because that's going through metal pipes, right? And I can't transport it by buckets or whatever because that's violating being carried in utensils. So what you have to do, and this is why it takes a long time till you get a mikvah, you, you, you can't make a mikvah overnight. You gotta have a, a roof, a flat roof, generally, and there'll be a big hole in the roof. And running from the roof to the pool, to the place that you're making your mikvah, there will be rubber or plastic piping and the rainwater will enter the pit, right, through pipes that are not metal, typically rubber or plastic piping. And you gotta wait until you get 200 gallons of water. You cannot fill a mikvah by turning on a bathtub, turning on a, 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 a tap. It's gotta be that rainwater, unless you have a spring, like Tzfat. It's gotta be that rainwater that comes through the roof. Now, how long do you think that would take? Well, obviously it depends on where you're making your mikvah. If you're making your mikvah in an area that has a lot of rain all the time, it may still take two months, it may take, take, take a long time. 
if you're in the desert, or even in Israel, for most, although this is an unusual year, we've had rain. Rain in Eeyore is, is very, very amazing. But normally speaking in Israel, there's no rain after in, in Nisan. So what do you do? How do you make a, how do you make a mikveh in Eilat? I want to make mikveh in Eilat. What do I do? I need that rainwater. So here, let me mention, there's a very interesting heter. That is, many opinions say the rule that you can't transport water in vessels only applies to water. It does not apply to ice. Mm. So the postkims say you can take ice. Let's take ice from the mountains. I go up to Mount Hermon chip out blocks of ice, put them in baskets. Now, you put them in baskets, by the way, not, not in solid containers, because you want the, if there's any water there, you want that water to drip out. In other words, you want to put ice in the mikvah, not water in the mikvah. So these are baskets with openings in them, so all the water will run out, but you'll put pieces of solid ice in the mikvah. And then when the ice melts, you can have a mikvah pretty quickly. This is very, very important leniency, that the way we make a mikvah is by transporting ice, and the ice does not melt in the buckets. The ice melts in the mikvah. That's why the, we transport them in baskets that the water drains out, because you don't want to dump... See, you don't want to dump ice and water in the mikvah, because the water that you dumped would be water that was transported in a vessel. Okay? You understand the idea here? Okay. All righty. So now you have your mikvah. Okay? That's how you have your mikvah. Ah. Now the problem is, well, wait a second. It took me a long time to get that mikvah. But then people start being total in the mikvah. After a while, the water gets a little foul or whatever it is. So what do I do? I got to start the whole process over again. So now I'm going to tell you the big, 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 big secrets of mikvah. And that is nobody who goes to the mikvah is tovel in the mikvah. You come to the mikvah and you say, I want to go to the mikvah. They say, sorry, we don't let people go to the mikvah. If you go to a mikvah, you'll see that the mikvah actually, the mikvah that you go to, it's actually a large bathtub. It has a faucet. They fill it up. They drain it. They fill it up. They drain it. They fill it up. They drain it. Now, you walk in and you say, what? What do you mean you fill it up and drain it? A mikvah is not kosher if the water goes through pipes. And yet, the mikvah that we all go to, whether it's a ger, whether it's a nita, whether uh, it's um, a woman every month when she's a nita, or whether it's pots and pans, although that's a different mikvah. Yeah, we don't, we're not talking about pots and the same again. There's usually a separate mikvah, but it's the same thing. You don't go to the mikvah. You go into something that's filled with tap water. How could that be? Aha. So now I'm going to introduce a real, real, real important principle of mikvah. That is, it says that if tap water is connected to a kosher mikvah, it now becomes the mikvah. So here is how it works. 
when you go to a mikveh, whenever you go, what you have to see is this. The actual mikveh, when I say the actual mikveh, I mean the actual rainwater, is in a locked room that nobody ever sees except the rabbis that have to inspect it. So imagine this. Imagine this room is the mikveh, meaning this room is the pool where you're going to immerse. Okay? And this is a pool that's filled up every day with clean water from the tap. Right? They fill it up, they drain it, fill it up and drain it, fill it up and drain it. But in this wall, there will be a hole in the wall which normally has a rubber stopper so the water doesn't drain out. But whenever the mikveh is used, the stopper is removed. So the water here, the tap water here, is touching. It goes in the hole, through the hole. In fact, the term that's used is kissing. Hashaka. The tap water kisses the mikveh water. And because the tap water kisses the mikveh water, the tap water now becomes kosher for immersion. This is called hashaka. Hashaka means kissing. So, as a result, we have the best of both worlds. We don't use up the rainwater that took us so many months to get. Nobody uses, nobody is tovel in that rainwater. Right? That is pure, pristine, remains separate. And the way, how do we get clean water for Tevila? Because every day we drain it and fill it up. Drain it and fill it up. I, water that you fill up from a tap is not kosher for mikvah. That's true. But when there's hashaka, it becomes kosher. What that means is this. And this, this, is, this is a mistake sometimes. It is extremely important that the rubber stopper be removed when people go to the mikvah so that the tap water touches in the hole, touches the mikvah water. If the mikvah attendant forgot to remove the rubber stopper, then when you're going to the mikvah, you're going in tap water. It's a puzzle, it's no good. So there have been cases where, I mean, I, I've heard over the years, uh, you know, a given night, let's say you had uh, 10 women went to the mikvah, for nido, let's say. And they discover afterwards, oy vey, we forgot to remove the stopper. So the 10 women have to be called up and be told, you have to go back to the mikvah. You see the principle here, because the tap water is intrinsically not kosher for, for mikvah. It only becomes kosher because it's kissing the waters of the mikvah, right? So the big secret here is nobody goes to the mikvah. You don't go into the mikvah. You go into the tap water, but the tap water becomes kosher because it's connected to the waters of the mikvah. You see? Called hashaka. Yeah. Why is it the case that the tap water is kosher as opposed to the mikvah water becoming? Yeah, so this is one of the powers of the mikvah. Since the mikvah has the power to purify impurity, it has the power to kosher the tap water. It's, it's, again, it's part of the great, great power of the mikvah. Okay? Everyone understands how this works. So now I'll mention a very, very interesting chumrah of Chabad. 
in mikveh. Right? You know, you may have heard, I mean, over the years, I'm sure you've come across this idea that Chabad sometimes will build its own mikveh. Even though there's a community mikveh, they want to build their own mikveh. Why, 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 why is that? I mean, what's wrong with, uh, you know, I mean, mikvahs, people... You know, the Chazanish once said about, he says, like, the Chazanish once said, it's kind of a, a joke, but it's kind of true. He says, he's never seen a kosher Erev, and he's never seen a puzzle mikvah. By that he means, when it comes to Erev, people rely on all sorts of leniencies. So you'll never have an Erev that's really 100%. But mikvah's the other way around. People are very strict when they build a mikvah. So they... They put into a mikvah all sorts of redundancies, meaning to make it, right? So mikvahs are pretty good. People are very strict on mikvahs. So why does Chabad build its own mikvah? So let me explain what the Chabad problem is. It's a very intriguing problem. Chabad's problem is this. Tap water itself is not kosher for mikvah, right? That we know because it's going through metal pipes. So the only way it's kosher is because of hashaka, because you have a hole in the wall, that connects it to the mikvah. Now here's the problem. The inner mikvah, the inner mikvah, the real mikvah, has to have 200 gallons of water. But the problem is, every time you use the mikvah, some of the mikvah water dribbles out into the tap water, which drains away, and some of the tap water comes in. So what do you do with that exchange? Because it now turns out, let's assume you started off with 200 gallons of rainwater. But after one day, it might only be 199 gallons of rainwater. And then 198 gallons of rainwater. Well, does that make it puzzle right away? It actually doesn't. The rule basically is, we do allow a certain amount of exchange until you hit the majority point. Meaning to say, as long as of your 200 gallons of rainwater, you have 101 gallons because of the exchanges, you're okay. But at some point, you're gonna tip the balance. So Chabad is afraid that at some point, you're not gonna have the requisite quantity of rainwater to kosher the tap water because every time there's a use of the mikvah, some of the tap water, I'm sorry, some of the rainwater gets exchanged with the tap water. Well, that's a good problem, right? That's a good question. So how do you address it? So this is Chabad's invention. Chabad's invention is they do a double pit. They do a double mikvah, meaning to say the following. This is called bor. Bor is a cistern. Algabe bore, which means in the inner room they'll have a pit of 200, but under that pit with a hole at the bottom there'll be another bore, meaning they fill up two chambers. So let's, let's call the bottom one is A, the top one is B, and B, so there's a hole in the floor of A and B, and then there's a hole in the side of B that links to the tap water. So here's the point. The bottom bore never, never loses any of its water. So as a result, even if B on top 
gets depleted uh, of its rainwater, it'll be kosher because of its connection to the bottom one, and therefore it'll be able to kosher the tap water that way. In other words, uh, the bottom one makes the top one kosher, and then the top one can make the tap water make for kosher. This is called bor al-gabe bor, meaning a cistern on top of a cistern, which means, in other words, Chabad, Chabad mikvah at a minimum would need double the rainwater of a regular mikvah. It also costs more money to build because you have to have two two things. Uh, but this is the chumrah that they this is the chumrah that they have for this particular reason. But even in a Chabad mikvah, you're still you're still immersing yourself in tap water. Okay, that does not change. Um, if you don't like that, you'll have to find a spring. Only the Ariza like that, I believe you're actually being tovel in the waters of the spring. But generally speaking, most mikvahs, you're tovel. I mean, you understand why. I mean, if you were to be tovel in the rainwater, you, you know, you'd have to replace, you'd have to, you know, make a new mikvah every, every two months or less. So we don't want to, we don't want to let you use the actual rainwater. Uh, but the problem is, Chabad was choshesh for the uh, exchange that occurs, yeah. When one person goes to the mikvah and then another person goes to the, does the water have to be like drained up, like drained out and then someone can go in? Like, well, 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 again, I mean, if, if, you're, if somebody actually went, no, it does not. In other words, uh, because the tap water, if somebody actually went into the rainwater, that might be a problem. But the, like into like, the mikvah, like the, like, well, She's asking what's the frequency of changing up the pool water. Yeah. The tap oh, you mean water. the tap water? Yeah. That depends on the mikvah. They, they, they do not change it after each year, so that would take okay. too long. But I think they change it daily, basically. Um, uh, is it possible for the... I, again, some, I mean, some mikvahs are dirty. I, I mean, uh, this is already a hygienic decision that the mikvah makes. Halakhically, there's no particular uh, amount of time that you have to change it. Yeah. No, I was just going to ask, like, is it possible for the water to, I guess, like, become, like, unkosher? Like especially, I guess, in terms of like to be less kaolin, like if it's pots that are have treif. Okay, so so that's interesting. So so treif will not make the mikvah not kosher. Meaning to say, uh, see, kosher is a mixed term here. Yeah. There's kosher as used for food, and there's yeah. kosher as used for mikvah. Kosher as used for food does not affect kosher as used for mikvah. Okay. okay? Right, so this is a little bit about mikvah. Again, it's something that uh, people often don't discuss just to understand uh, what a, a mikvah is. Uh, it's very interesting philosophically, the idea that the quantity for mikvah is, I mentioned 200 gallons, but, but in halacha it's expressed as 40 sa'ah. That's the, the measure that the, the Talmud uses. And we know that 40 is the language of creation. 40 is creation. For example, an embryo is not considered human till it's 40 days old. When Hashem gave the Torah to the Jewish people, Moshe was in Har Sinai for 40 days. That was like the creation of the Jewish people. Um, when Hashem wanted to destroy the world and recreate it by, by Noah, the flood was for 40 days. 40 is connected to creation. And Kabbalistically, the reason that's so is Pirkei Avos says that Hashem created the world in 10 statements. Remember, Asara Mamaros? 
And according to Kabbalah, there are four worlds. Right? The world of Atsilus, the world of emanation, the world of Bria, the world of creation, the world of Yitzira, the world of formation, and then this world, which is called the world of Asiya, the world of doing. Right? It's abbreviated Avya, Aleph, Beis, Yud, Ayin, the four worlds. So if each world had 10 mamaras, so 40 represents the totality of creation. In fact, it is said, that is why the malachos of Shabbos, the number of prohibited activities of Shabbos, are 39, because the Torah prohibits our exercising creativity on Shabbos, but human beings can only do 39 levels of creativity because the highest level of creativity is something from nothing, yesh mayayin. Only Hashem has the 40th level, or the first level. We have 39 levels beyond that, but the yesh mayayin is only Hashem. So the notion is this. If 40 represents creation, immersion in a mikvah is a form of being recreated. Theoretically, we could tell you, stay in the mikvah for 40 days. That's too mm -hmm. hard. So what we do is we change the zman into a quantity. 40 days is the creation of new life. The 40 saw represents becoming a new person. That's why a convert goes to the mikvah. A nida is a new person in her relationship with her husband. Even the ger is a new person. And even the pots and pans are dedicated to a new tachlis. And it's been said very often, one of the great mishalom is a mikvah is a return to the womb. Because when a baby is in its mother's womb, the baby is surrounded in a medium of water. You see, so the mikvah is, you're literally reborn. That's the great kayach of the mikvah, that it represents a rebirth in that uh, in that particular particular way, and uh, as I say, uh, Hasidus in particular uh, did emphasize the, the idea of mikveh for every for men especially. Um, among the non Hasidim, it was much less so, but uh, still, when, when mikveh is required, mikveh was required, and it's a well known halacha that when a Jewish community is being built, the very first institution that it is supposed to build is a mikveh even before a shul because the mikvah allows the relationship of husband and wife, which is the highest level of Kedusha, even more than a base Knesset. Now, I remember seeing a book. It's a very, very interesting book. This goes back like to the 1930s, where in those days, there were not a lot of mikvahs in the United States. Like Chabad was not even here yet. Uh, the the, the Friyat Rebbe was not uh, in this country. Not this country, I think. American. was not in the United States. Uh, and, and the few mikvahs that were there were very dirty, they were not nice, so, so the new generation of, of women didn't want to use them at all. So the few rabbis that were Isaac in Tarat HaMishpacha were trying to somehow encourage this use. So one rabbi came up with an idea that everybody should have a mikvah in their own house. And he drew diagrams, how it could fit in, how you could have a TV behind the, the mikvah behind the TV, all sorts of amazing diagrams, how you can have a trap door in your dining room. 
uh, and he, he was really suggesting everybody should have a mikvah. And that way everything's going to be great. Problem was, he was operating with such a, uh, such a, his water, he didn't have enough water. I mean, he was, he was interpreting the quantity you need for a mikvah as very, very small. And unfortunately, it would not have been, it would not have been valid. Uh, so, the amount of water you need for a mikvah is like too much for a regular house to have. Although there are people, there are individuals even today that have private mikvahs in their house, but uh, it's not a common, not a common thing. Yeah. Could a pool be used as a mikvah? So let's think about this. Uh, can a swimming pool be used as a mikvah? Right. So it all. Huh? Outdoor. Yeah, outdoor. So it all. So let's think about this. It all depends on how the water enters the pool. If it enters the pool through metal pipes, no. But if it enters the pool through plastic or rubber, yeah. So you can construct an outdoor swimming. But again, uh, even if you have plastic pipes, but, but again, if you're connecting it to the city tap water, you're going to have the same problem. But if you can connect it in a way that it doesn't go through metal pipes, yeah. In fact, there's a beautiful story about Ramosha Feinstein. Ramosha Feinstein was, uh, before he came to America, he was a rabbi in, in uh, Russia. He was a rabbi in Russia. And this was during Stalin, when you really weren't allowed to do anything. And there was no mikveh. And you weren't allowed to build a mikveh. You weren't allowed to go to the mikveh. You weren't allowed. So what did he do? So the communist government was building a swimming pool for the community. So Rabbi Feinstein bribed the architects that if they make certain changes, they could make the swimming pool into a kosher mikvah. And he managed to do it. He managed to create a communist swimming pool that was a kosher mikvah. Now, you may ask me a question. Well, wait a second, though. I mean, uh, people were you wearing bathing suits. How could that be, right? You're not supposed to wear anything when you go to the mikvah. But the answer is, b'dievet, b'dievet. If a person went to the mikvah even in a bathing suit, it w even in your clothes, it would be kosher as long as the water entered. I mean, listen, if, if I went to the mikvah with uh, all my clothes on, I probably would be wet inside. So the point basically is, as long as the water reached you, it's going to be kosher. So yeah, a swimming pool certainly can be a kosher mikvah, and even if somebody was wearing clothes at the time, uh, evident at least, it would be a kosher uh, uh, immersion. And he actually did that. He actually made the swimming pool into a kosher mikvah. But as I say, most swimming pools would not be kosher mikvahs because the water gets goes, goes through the city, this, whatever the city system, which is metal pipes and everything else. What about rainwater? Like Actual oh, direct rain? Yeah, yeah but I, I understand, but, but here's the problem. Once you add tap water in there, the rainwater that comes afterwards will not be kosher, meaning the rule of hashaka is only if I first had the rainwater, then I had the tap water, I can kosher it. But if I had the tap water first, uh, the rainwater is not going to mm. kosher it afterwards. Okay? So uh, this is, uh, so now you know how to build a mikvah. So, Actually, it's important if any of you are going to be shluchim. Uh, often one of your jobs will be to build a mikvah or get the mikvah built in various ways. So it's good to know what the basic idea is. 
Okay. Um, all right, we did a lot today. Maybe we'll stop here. Um, wish you all have a good uh, week and a good Chodesh. Oh, no, no, no. Just, uh, you know.